Hi there, this is How to Choose, the show that helps you make better decisions and improve your judgment. Thanks for joining us. I'm Ken. And I'm Tessa. And today we've got a special interview for you with psychologist, professor and author, Dr. Patrick Kilkar, who is an expert in the topic of emotional intelligence. So let's take a listen to what Dr. Kilkar has to say about emotional intelligence. Uh, we're going to learn about how an understanding of emotional intelligence can help us heal and grow and live our best possible lives. Well, a very special welcome to our guest today, Dr. Patrick Kilkar, a psychologist and adjunct professor at Georgetown University in Washington, D.C., and the author of the great book, Leading an Emotionally Intelligent Life. So, Dr. Kilkar, welcome to How to Choose. Thank you. Thank you both for having me. It's going to be fun. So, Dr. Kilkar, before I listened to your book, I thought I had the general gist of what emotional intelligence was, but I quickly discovered that my understanding was very limited. I'd thought of emotional intelligence as simply the ability to empathize with others and to recognize and manage your own emotions. And I know that's, that is part of it, uh, but there's much more to it than that. Are you able to provide us with a useful definition of emotional intelligence? And then uh, we'll delve more into some of the specifics of the different components. Everybody seems to have their own definition of what emotional intelligence is or, or maybe is not. For me, what, what completely makes sense when I think about it is fairly simple, and it incorporates exactly what you're saying, Ken. It is, how do I understand my personal feelings? So to what degree am I really self-aware about the variety of different feelings that I have at the moment and every day. And then in using those, how does it impact the relationships in my life? If you step back, emotional intelligence is me and Patrick understanding <clears throat> what I'm feeling and how I'm feeling it. How do I see it kind of branching off and affecting people and understand what other people are going through? There's so much to unpack there. And there are 15 components of emotional intelligence. I was just wondering if you could run us through some of the more important ones. One of the five subgroups is decision-making. So maybe talking about how that links to emotional intelligence. Yes, great question. For me, there are four competencies that matter in a way that the others don't, and they matter when they're together. And the four that I'm going to talk about create our sense of emotional well-being. So. Self-regard, you know, who am I in the world? How comfortable am I in that? Optimism, when I think about what's ahead of me, when I think about entering into something, when I think about doing something, where is my thinking in terms of being optimistic? And it's kind of shocking, and this isn't the word according to Patrick, but it's shocking the amount of time we spend with the dial kind of ratcheted toward the negative. And by that, I mean, you would you have this notion of in your brain, yeah, I'm going to do it, but it's probably not going to work. And, you know, why am I putting effort into something that's not going to happen? Why would I continue to go out with him or her where I know they don't really care for me the way I care for them? I mean, these, these are just negative thoughts. It's important, though, because theory dictates what we observe. So if my theory is something is not going to work out, or someone doesn't care for me in the way I care for them. We're putting all this effort into writing this book and it's not going to happen. Does it in fact lead toward the book not being written, someone not loving me, um, effort put into a task won't pay off? Not necessarily. 
But what happens is if you look at the process that drives that, it's something that really keeps us in this plane of being uncomfortable and really in emotional pain. And so you've got self-regard, you've got optimism, self-actualization, which I talked about with the example in the beginning, and then social relationships. Well, what do I think about people? How much do I like people? It's interesting that the EQIs that I got up to the up to kind of the midpoint of the pandemic, social relationships were really very strong for most people. From the midway point to now, there's been a dramatic change. I mean, if you think about that, when you look at the people in your life and you look at the pandemic, it has changed fundamentally the way people think about relationships. Mm -hmm. And it's gone from my very good buddy, who's just this really annoying extrovert and always fun, always asking great questions. Everybody <laughs> wants to know him. It's, I mean, it's enviable. <laughs> I don't even recognize him. Now. Wow. He works virtually. He doesn't go out. You know, things outside the family he used to do, he no longer does. It's just been this pall cast over the way people think about the world. And there's a saying out there that I agree with, which is there is no such thing as an unwounded soldier. I believe that based on what just what I've seen in my own life. But I think that you can take that and extend it a bit further where there is no such thing as someone not being affected, impacted by this pandemic. So these four competencies come together to indicate where is my sense of well-being? How balanced do I really feel in the world right now? So those are four, kind of tested to your point, those are four that I think are pretty valuable and critical when you put them together. And then being able to have a, conversa a conversation with someone where, is this where they want to be? I mean, there's some people that really don't want to change, I suppose, right? But when well-being, well -being, when it's low, it's mm. problematic. I think that's a, it's a fascinating point. Boy, there's so many things that I'm, <laughs> I'm sort of noting mentally. I'm glad I'm recording this. Fascinating insights. And it's maybe a good segue to that next question. As you've said, you know, you, you're asking people, do they want to change? You know, are they happy with their life? And I think leading an emotionally intelligent life, and I really do recommend it to anyone listening, it's fundamentally a book about change. And it's mostly stories about courageous people who chose to heal and change. I mean, some some of the the vignettes that you tell are obviously people who, for different reasons, did not make that choice and weren't able to follow through. And there's a quote in the book that I really liked. You said, at the end of the day, each person comes to understand what they can and cannot control. Essentially, the only thing that we can truly control is our desires and the choices surrounding them. And even as you talk about the impact of the pandemic, can can you maybe reflect on this? Because, you know, we're all, as you've just said, we're all wounded. We're all carrying you know scars with us that impact how we live is healing and change always possible and can you unpack that a little bit for us that that aspect of of having that desire and then those choices that we can make uh, around those those desires yeah i mean 
Wonderful. When I read the question that you sent, I spent a lot of time thinking about it. In terms of, are there places or moments or situations within which we don't heal? And yes, there are. And, you know, some of these stories in the book that you were kind of talking about, these are people that went through things that I literally cannot imagine in my mm. mind. Not, not even, not necessarily even going through, but going through and then to continue to live in the world in a way that serves them. And the stories are, are, are remarkable. Mm. And I've seen a number of people who have come in with wounds that are just staggering and not being able to really gain courage and gain traction and fully moving past them. So when I read the question, what came to my brain, usually when people have gone through a very difficult time, either an extended time you know, being abused through their childhood or working in an environment where someone is just horrible, and that that horribleness just surrounds day in and day out. Generally, when I've seen people be able to begin to truly heal, they're doing it in a way where they have unmatched support in the way that they've never had before. So what I mean, they're going to therapy and counseling or talking with someone about what they've been through and the significance of that. But then they also begin to have other people into their life where they feel the emotion, they feel emotionally held, they feel emotionally courageous, and that they know that as they step out into really looking at these traumas or these moments that happen, which would bring anybody to their knees, they realize they can do it in a place where they're safe. And not to go really deep into the psychology of, of what I'm thinking. But it's that notion of what happens to us in childhood stays with us, particularly. Mm. And if we were fortunate to grow up with loving parents in a wonderful household, feeling really open and directed toward our personal talents, that's wonderful. And it doesn't mean that those individuals live without pain. It's not true. But there, there is this sense of support they carry with them that really makes a difference. So, yes, you know, to your point, unfortunately, I've seen situations in people where they don't have the support they need to move in the direction that they really want. And that would absolutely be healing for them. Does that make sense? Yes, absolutely. You know, I don't know other than to offer the, the, the most sincere support to someone, how to get people to really believe that things can be different. Mm. Now, everybody that is in the book that I wrote, in order to do the EQI, they had to step back and look at things that they have wanted to be put away for years. Yes. Yeah. For years. And that's what I mean by ordinary people making extraordinary decisions mm. in their life to heal. Yeah. And to really begin stepping forward, making very different decisions based on the fact that they really do feel their worthiness. And, and no matter who it is, if you go through a very traumatic childhood or a very traumatic situation, 
you go through the world feeling profound shame. And that affects the decisions we make, that affects who we bring into our, our world. And those four competencies with regard to well-being are what I do spend a lot of time on with people, either directly or, or indirectly. And you're obviously dealing with such a broad spectrum of people there. What is it that triggers people to be successfully choosing to heal? What is it that takes that person from looking at their life and going, this is just, I can manage this to the point where, no, I do need to seek help? Tessa, that is a brilliant question. And if we could really figure that out truly to be able to kind of get people from that thinking about it or contemplative stage of thinking about going to talk to someone. If I were to have to only say one thing about what the book is directed toward, it's directed toward people no longer having to live in pain because they've known in so many different ways in their life, nothing but that. And I don't know if there's any one way to really figure out how you get that aha moment. What I've seen is people will come, they'll sit down, they'll begin talking to me, and then for a variety of reasons, they go to themselves, okay, this guy's listening, seems like there might be something here and they slowly begin to take risks. And those risks lead to a deeper relationship within which they feel safe. You know, the book is also very much about communication. And though you'll never necessarily see that term, but it is, it's about who we talk to in the world, how we communicate. You know, do, do we actively invite people into our life to assist us in making important decisions. And, you know, if you also step back, if I, you know, I've listened to a few of your guests that you've had on, and also in terms of just neuroscience. And there's so many things that flow into that river of decision-making at any point in time, and it just feels so gargantuan to me. You know, the way that we think about things, the way we see ourselves, the experiences that we've had, our native ability and intelligence, all of these things, and to figure out which one is really the most important, it's like playing whack-a-mole, yeah. where you pop up, miss it, pop up, miss, because it, it's so ubiquitous, it's so everywhere. If you ever have a guest who says, you know what, I figured out how to facilitate that process and get people into counseling or therapy or whatever, Man, throw it my way. Yeah. Because um, I, I would use it. We'll absolutely. <laughs> Very will. silver bullet. Yeah. <laughs> well, this might be a good segue to our next question. I think it builds on that. You say in the book that self reflection is the cornerstone of self correction, which I think is a great little quotable quote. Now, the, the question we've got for you, and, and this probably builds, as I said, on, on Tessa's question Have you got any suggestions of how we can get better at self? reflection. And particularly noting that, you know, if I can use the term navel gazing, you know, there there can be an element of self-reflection that doesn't always lead to greater self-perception. It can be, and I'm obviously I'm speaking not as an expert, but just from my own experience, I can dwell on certain opinions or uh, impressions that I get of myself and of others around me 
that that self-reflection process can reinforce things that may not be true. And I know you mention in your book a client, uh, Carl, who rejects the opinions of others if they didn't match his own views. Can you reflect a bit on that and tell us, you know, what are some of those keys to getting better at self-reflection? Well, part of it is if I really reflect on who I am in the world, am I going to become a victim of my knowledge and actually do something with it? You know, I have a couple who the husband, for reasons I, I just can't understand, normally functioning guy, really smart, done great stuff in the world, who fundamentally could not see how his actions were damaging the emotional life of his of his partner. He just couldn't see it. He could say it. Oh, I hear what you're saying. And it's a pretty, it's a pretty empathic guy, I think. But that empathy toward her just did not exist. No matter what I did to try to kind of get him to that self-reflective place that you're talking about, he just would duck and cover constantly. And I don't know why. Client asked me yesterday and, and was upset. He said, what is the point of therapy? Explain it to me. Because I don't see there's any point to this. And I said, well, maybe everybody's different. Everybody's point of origin about thinking about change and thinking about renewal and all, all these other things that can come out of counseling, coaching, therapy. I said, in my therapy, it allows me to remain honest with who I am. And it does. Mm -hmm. And I'll give you an example. Not too long ago, we were upstairs and my wife stopped and looked at me. She said, hey, you know what? You owe me $150. I went, oh, okay, for what? She goes, you know what? If you're going to treat me like a maid, by God, you're going to pay me like a maid. And yeah. What a great creator. It just blew me away how great that was. However, what, what she was saying is, hey, get it together. You know, take, look around, literally look around and do what's needed <clears throat> without me asking or whatever the case may be. And she was 100% right. However, when you, you're with couples, certain couples where they just fundamentally do not see what the other person is saying or feel what the other person is is feeling. Hmm. And that creates all of these different kinds of decisions that occur within the relationship. And they're not necessarily going to be good decisions. It just makes me reflect on when you get frustrated with people who say things like, I can see that you're upset or they acknowledge your emotions but they don't acknowledge their cause or their responsibility. So they're saying like, oh, I'm, I'm sorry that you're, you're angry, but it's actually not saying I can see that I've made you angry through my actions. So it's dealing with the symptoms, not actually dealing with the causes. Right. And that for somebody who's you know minimally self-aware, their head's going to pop off their shoulders when they hear that for exactly the reason that you're saying, Tessa. Again, it's that communication and nuance is important. What does it fundamentally mean, though, to be able to hear what your body and your heart and your soul is communicating to you as a person with regard to decisions that you will inevitably make in your life versus being absolutely blocked off this, this enormous blind spot, often to someone we say we love, and they feel completely 
stuck. You know, it's that it's that notion of gaslighting, which has become more popular in in the U.S. culture, and maybe just it's now, you know, global. But gaslighting is a real thing, and it's that kind of what you're getting at, Tessa, where you go, yeah, I'm sorry that you're upset, and you know, blah 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 blah, rather than you know what, kind of like what I said to my wife is, you're right. And the, there's nothing beyond that you can say other than I'm sorry, because it's wait and tell. Let's wait and see if Patrick actually hears what someone's saying to him and follows through. That's a wonderful it, way to describe it, Patrick. I love I love the way you've captured that. That That's quite profound. Just, just wait and, and then we'll tell. Um, yeah, I might just jump in there because I think... Um, you know, one of the things, and it's tracking back a little bit to that first story that you told, but, you know, one of the things that really struck me in the book is that strengths uh, can become liabilities in our lives. You know, we can have these tremendous areas of strength. And I, I can remember a, a very popular leadership book, at least in the organization where I work, and I think it was called Strengths Finder. But the the concept of this, which I'd never fully agreed with, but it was, you know, don't try and be good at everything, work out what your strengths are, focus on your strengths and accept that you've got weaknesses. And 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 I think there's an element of that that does make sense. You know, most people don't try and become brilliant at everything. You know, there's an element of choosing and focusing that we talk about in our first season of the podcast. But can you just explore that a little bit? Because I think one of the things that comes out of this book is that balance is important for emotional health and emotional intelligence it's not enough to just say, well, I'm really, really good at this. Don't worry about these other elements of emotional intelligence. Uh, in fact, that that real strength can can knock us off kilter. And I feel exactly as you do. Our weaknesses, or the, the book, the way I talk about it, are areas of growth. They're real, they're important, and we really have to pay attention to it. If, if I'm a great writer, well, you know, over time, I'm not going to become not a good writer. I mean, that's something that you build on and you know is you're really good at. If you're a great runner, and you may get injured uh, in your running. But by and large, that's really not going to change. Our strengths generally don't change. However, unaddressed weaknesses or those areas of growth that we really need to pay attention to, if we don't, they can begin nibbling away at those particular strengths. What comes to my brain immediately is someone who is alcoholic or someone who is over drinking or whatever the case is, and that when he or she drinks, they just become another person. It, it, you don't like being around them. They make bad decisions. And I've seen many people like that you know, in that privileged chair that I sit in it as a therapist. It's this piece, though, that if we don't pay attention to that or somebody doesn't pay attention to that, it will begin to eat away at their strengths. Let's look at what's going on just in terms of mental health, you know, what comes out of your podcast so much. If we're, if we're really not paying attention to the things that can get in the way, our mental health fundamentally cannot grow. It, it can't. Yes, yeah, strength finders is, you know, look at your strengths, double down on them, do really well, Everybody has deficits. Don't worry about it. Well, okay, that that's kind of nice. However, what what does happen in our life 
with our deficits? I, you know, your question is brilliant. And I hope that your audience, when they hear that notion of just focus on your strengths, don't worry about the areas that you're not great in. If that comes out of a professional environment, yeah, that's probably a good idea. You know, if you're really great at what you do, you don't have to worry about, you know, passing the bar exam or going to med school or whatever. Keep driving yourself toward what you want and what you're best at. But we really have to keep an eye on what we're not. Yeah. Yeah. And what about those of us who have a lot of work to do across a lot of different areas of our emotional intelligence? Is it best to work on a, you know, are there certain areas to focus on or would you recommend being holistic when there's a lot of deficit? Again, it's a great question. It's when you read the book, even if you've never seen the EQI 2.0, even if you've never taken it, if you never desire to take it, <clears throat> those 15 competencies that are, are really brought to life through that report, they give us a very clear idea about where we are. It's, an, it's a socio-emotional MRI of where we are right now at this particular time in our life. And going forward, being aware, doing things moment to moment that are in our best interest and in the best interest of everybody around us. Mm. You know, I just think is fundamental. We all have an opportunity to heal, all of us. And some take it and some don't. What I talk a lot about with my clients, who I'm very fortunate to have, is what would life be like if you no longer spent time in that third bucket, putting all your energy, all of your time into changing something or fixing something you can't? What would it look like if you're in that place, day to day, moment to moment, where you're completely focused on what you can change and what you can influence in your day-to-day -day life, in your relationships, what would it be like? How would that change the rhythm of your life? How would it change how you feel about you and how you feel about others in the world? There are many, many successful people out there in the world who have really been broken in so many different ways. And above and beyond everything that we've talked about, the other piece that's there is this fundamental um, notion of who are who are we as human beings in that we some of us have to file, fight deep depression. Anxiety just is always flowing around us, keeping us off kilter. You know, bipolar and all these other things that are out there that just slam against people. And at times they just don't know what to do other than be in survival mode. But it, it's being able to really be aware that life is tough. M. Scott Peck, in the mm -hmm. book, The Road Less Traveled, which was written maybe 30, 35 years ago. The opening line to the book is, life is difficult, period. And I don't always completely agree with that. But life is certainly challenging. And when we look at it as a challenge, what's possible? Versus if we look at it as just flat out difficult. Yeah, that's that's a nice insight. I li I, I like that one, and I that jumped out to me again as I was listening to your book, uh, Doctor Kilkara. Key message that that grabbed me, and it obviously reflects the topic of our podcast, 
is that we need to take ownership of our choices. And you you tell the story of Jean, who thinks that she, that other people manufacture her trials and tribulations and then foist them upon her. And she fails to see how her own choices affect her life. Can you give us some general, and this is really asking you to generalize, but some general insights into some of the reasons that we as humans refuse to accept responsibility for our choices? I think because it's painful. You know, if I up in the room that I talk about with my wife, saying I owed her $150, which I did pay her by. I want everybody to pay that. <laughs> Just for the record. <laughs> Just for the record. But l- let's look at some other possible responses. One could be, hey, I work my butt off. I'm doing all of these different things day in and day out. You got to be joking me. Right? Could have said that, mm. which is that very defensive kind of thing. I could have all of a sudden just started weaving this web of words and derailing what she was saying to me and what she was feeling. I think fundamentally, being aware of our environment, who people are, what's going on, if we take responsibility for what we do, sometimes that can be a heavy thing. Then there's also on the other side of that, it goes back to mental illness and things of that nature. That some people, for a variety of reasons, they are in a place at that time where they just can't take responsibility. Mm. And so they will foist that responsibility onto many others around them. Something as an offshoot of what you're saying, Ken, which is important. Why is it, and the three of us could spend a lot of time, and the audience could spend a lot of time looking at this. Why is it that people remain in relationships for a very long time that's just foundationally unhealthy for them? Why? Well, I mean, it, it's a bit related to that notion of taking responsibility. That if you think about somebody takes all this money and they go to a, a gambling resort and soon enough, all that money is gone. Now, some people just get up and leave and go, okay. You know, this is what I wanted to gamble. This is it. A surprising number of people will go, take their credit card, get their checkbook, whatever it is, take more money out and continue to throw good money after bad consistently. To be responsible to the people in our lives starts with being responsible to ourselves. And am I living my life above board? Am I being as honest as I can with myself? about what I'm doing? Do I lie? And if I do, what is that about? Because if you read the, the lit, we all lie, right? And I remember first hearing that many years ago, and I thought, that's not true. Not everybody lies. But then you begin seeing the, the documentation of it over time. And yeah, I don't mean lying in such a way that it hurts someone else or lying in such a way that it completely augments who you are in the world. It's like you're going to 7-Eleven or you're going to the, you know, the, the grocery store, you're going to pick up a book and your partner goes, where are you going? Oh, I'm, not, I'm just going down the street. You don't really, you don't really say what you're doing. There's no reason for it. But there is at that moment when someone says, Hey, where are you going? What are you doing? This self-protective component comes up and that capacity to lie is there. 
I mean, it's a bit of a wiggly response to your question. But it starts with us really knowing ourselves, taking responsibility for who we are in the world, and which is not easy because, you know, if someone is prone to anger, and there's a lot more anger in this world now, post-pandemic, what happens with it? What do we do with it? Who does it impact? I mean, I, every day, there's something in the paper around here about some kind of road rage incident that occurred right in this area. It just feels that people feel so upside down. They don't know what to do. What does it really mean to take responsibility where in the D.C. area, there's been so many layoffs with all kinds of tech companies and all this stuff is going on. People feel really upside down and they're angry. And I think that's a piece also what keeps us from fully embracing who we are in the world. And it goes back to also that notion that if we're angry and we find ourselves moving through the world in different ways and at different times angry, we cannot take responsibility for who we are. It, it, it's just an impossibility. Being able to recognize that I'm angry and that the, angry is the anger is having a particular impact, that's the moment where I can truly begin to take responsibility for who I am. I think so many of these stories highlight that our emotional intelligence is really tested, you know, when we are at our a heightened state of emotions ourselves. So when you're parenting, that's a con, uh, because children's emotions are extremely extreme at times. So you could think that you're a really balanced, calm person, and then you have a three-year-old or a 16-year-old, and I think that's when yeah. you actually are tested. Or, you know, same, in a road situation, you think you're actually very calm, and then all of a sudden you can feel things bubbling up. And I think that could be maybe that trigger for some self-reflection and think, okay, most of the time I'm fine, but every now and then I'm triggered. What's causing it? Thinking about your own ability under pressure, perhaps. It, and that's that piece of putting your ear to the train track, to be able to feel that vibration. And, and what you just said, Tessa, is the beginning of being able to embrace responsibility about where we are and who we are. Having children is, is just unbelievable in terms of you know our own emotional continuum from being out of our minds and couldn't love them more. I mean, it just goes back and forth in pretty remarkable ways. The piece, though, is being able to give ourselves permission to feel what we're feeling. If I'm angry at my daughter, I'm angry at my daughter. It's not that I shouldn't be angry or it's not that I... I shouldn't have a particular feeling. The key is, and I think this is kind of what you're getting to, Tessa, what do I do with it? You know, do I throw them out of the car? Do you know, lock all the doors so they can't get in at night? How do I manage it? And that's where what you're bringing up is kind of the tip of the iceberg in that emotional intelligence is not a thing. You know, the three of us could see somebody who is emotionally intelligent, we, we can see them, we know what it is, but truly kind of describing it is difficult. Mm. And it, because being emotionally intelligent, first, it's it's on a continuum. And it's not something it's not a station that you arrive at. It's always something that you're working on and thinking about. And the culprit usually in that formula is emotion. 
You know, I, I have a buddy that said, who just like you, Ken, he has three teenage kids. And he said, you know, it's kind of like they have temporary psychosis. I mean, something is going on that it, and he goes, you know, I was that way too, obviously, but it's just beyond emotional belief sometimes what goes on. Yes, we're not the ones going through it. They are. But how do we create an environment where as goofy as they can be sometimes that they feel safe? Mm. And believe it or not, teenagers, even though they act out, they do things that they're not supposed to, and they push against what we are, the one thing they want more than anything is to feel safe, yeah. even though they act sometimes like they don't. Mm. And that's the, you know, the, that positive parenting with a little six-year-old, it's precisely the same thing with a 16-year-old. It mm. just, it may present itself a bit differently. It has been wonderful speaking with you. I realized our time has raced away, and I think that just reflects a couple of things, just the the deep uh, riches of this as a topic, uh, but also your tremendous insights. You've been very generous with your time. And I would just, before I ask you a final question, I would say I would strongly encourage anyone who's uh, listened to today's episode to get your book, Leading an Emotionally Intelligent Life. and it gave me many, and I listened as I drove to and from work, and I was very conscious as I was driving that I didn't want to be falling into any kind of fit of road rage because of the <laughs> things I was hearing about. So I think I was a safer driver for the for the duration of that book. Um, but it gave me a lot to think about. And I think the power of the book, too, is that it is a series of stories that you don't teach theory systematically, but you use storytelling to just, I think, both to teach, but also to inspire. And I found the stories really deeply moving at times and very inspiring. So it gave me plenty of, of things to think about. So thank you so much for that. And 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 I guess my final question, and then Tess will, will have a chance for a final question as well. But just to wrap up, how would you summarize the message um, that you're communicating in the book and that really lies at the heart of the work that you do? It, it's really brief and I think very pointed. If we want to change whatever it is that we're doing in this world, we can. Because the 15 competencies located within the EQI, they're all learn-based behavior. They're not like the big five personality indicators, like being an extrovert or an introvert. It is what you are. It can fluctuate, but by and large, this is it. All of this is learned, and it comes out of our experiences. I always find great, great comfort in that because if something's learned, it can be unlearned and something learned over it in its place. But change is possible. I I wrote this. I don't want people to suffer one second longer than is necessary. And the three of us see it. Those that are in the audience, listening to the podcast, suffering is just huge. And people are in this pool of suffering so much. And they don't have to be. It does require, though, stepping out and digging a bit deeper to look at what's possible. Wonderful. What a great way to sum up. Thank you so much. And just echoing Ken's thanks, your reflection, your insights, and your time today. We really do appreciate it. If our listeners do want to go a little bit deeper on any of this, 
where can they find out more about you and your work? Oh, okay. The book is on Amazon. Just Patrick Chilkar, K-I-L-C-A-R-R. <clears throat> and if they want to know more about what I'm doing or the research that I'm doing, they can just send me a note. Kilkarp, K-I-L-C-A-R-R-P at georgetown.edu. Um, or there, I have a website, the eilife.com. It's all just one word, the eilife.com. And people are reading the book. I would love to get your feedback and you know what you think about it. What could be added? What could be done differently? It, it means a lot to me. Well, that's wonderful. Thank you so much. And I, I'm going to be a little bit uh, cheeky, as we say in Australia here, and say I suspect there will be a lot of people who will find this uh, episode just extremely helpful. Um, is there any chance that we may be able to get you back in the future to dig a bit more deeply on some issues? I'd love to, and I'm going to be in a place where I don't look like I'm in a cave because I don't know if <laughs> the listeners actually see it, but it's like, oh, this guy is living in a dungeon and <laughs> intelligence person. Uh, but something's wrong with that picture. Um, Hiding from yeah. noisy teenagers. <laughs> um, you both, you're great. And I would love to do that without question. Um, wonderful. It was really wonderful. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for your time. Well, what did you think, Tess? Oh, it was great, Ken. I really enjoyed this conversation. One of the quotes though, that stuck with me is, theory dictates what we observe. We really do colour the world we see based on our expectations. So I think you know the message that I'm taking away for that is I need to be so careful about the decisions I'm making, about my mindset and approach, because it's actually going to change you know, my perception of things. So just being aware that, you know, your expectations do have a really big impact. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's a really profound thought, isn't it? I, I, that stuck with me as well when he said it. I, I think for me too, a key point is that our show is based on the premise that personal growth is achievable for everyone, isn't it? Uh, and the key message I took from Dr. Kilkar's book and also from our chat with him is that once we make the decision that we want to grow or change or heal – then we really need to commit ourselves to some honest self-reflection. And this is likely to be confronting and painful based on my own personal experience. But if we're willing to be real with ourselves, then life-changing growth is possible. As Dr. Kilkar says in his book, self-reflection is the cornerstone of self-correction. So we really hope this has motivated you to choose to make a change in your life. Maybe it's restraining some of your strengths that are possibly becoming a weakness. Or doing that self-reflection to, to find out where it is that you want to focus. Look, if you've enjoyed this episode, and I hope you have, um, why don't you just stop what you're doing right now, unless you're driving, uh, and then share the link to the show on your socials. Uh, maybe someone else will also benefit from hearing what Dr. Kilkar has to say. And don't forget to hit subscribe to our podcast and write a review if you haven't already. Bye for now. Bye.